We've been enriched already by, let me say, Pastor uh, Chris's, Chris Elliott's prayer. But uh, I've been greeted uh, already, so I'm encouraged. Typical uh, Bethel greetings. Uh, when I walked in, uh, Miriam was asked uh, whether or not it'd be worth uh, staying to hear the message. <laughs> then I had another brother uh, uh, acknowledging my reputed uh, Old Testament uh, credentials and uh, wondering whether or not uh, someone in the Old Testament could preach the New Testament. And then, of course, I got greeted uh, by uh, asking which uh, songs I would sing today. So that made me feel very much like I was in Africa. And, and actually, I, I confess that I hadn't gone to uh, be uh, trained by Marsha. Uh, otherwise, I would, I would have loved to been able to give you a Hebrew chant or cant. Uh, but uh, aside from all the greetings, um, I can, oh yeah, and then, then uh, of course, if you were here last week, uh, you, you know that I'm preaching on the second sign, and we heard last week that this is the sign that might not be a sign. So I, I thought about that one, and you know, Pastor Tyler is the one that uh, put the series together, but Chris is, Pastor Chris is the one that made the assignment. So I kept wondering, uh, was, was he giving me this one because uh, thinking that if I messed it up, well, it doesn't matter anyway because it might not be a sign? <laughs> so I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm, I'm at home at Bethel with all this. <laughs> but then again, I, I, can, uh, I can say that, uh, sure, I can uh, stand up and speak about Jesus for three hours or so. Three hours, you ready for that? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not in my class in Africa, so I, I've tried to pare it down. If, uh, if not, uh, we'll, we'll move through the last points uh, pretty quickly. But uh, here we are in, uh, in sign two. And uh, this week, I was in Africa. Of course, uh, virtually. I was participating in a conference with uh, maybe as much as several hundred theological educators in Africa. And actually, they were Baptists. It was a Baptist conference. And uh, we were discussing uh, innovation, uh, innovation as it relates to uh, theological education. And uh, the pandemic, of course, has uh, encouraged uh, many areas of innovation and theological education the past year, uh, especially in, in Africa. And uh, one area is orality. Actually, this is something that's uh, been developed uh, even before the pandemic. But uh, we learned about a school in uh, Benin, that's the nation that's a neighbor of Nigeria. And the program there especially because they're ministering in, in rural areas where uh, liter literacy is not high. So the program is completely oral. So an orality curriculum. And uh, they were talking about, I didn't get to see the, the details of it. I would love to be able to have done that, but uh, maybe later. Uh, but it, a typical course would be to have the pastor come in, the pastor in training, 
and uh, learn the narratives of Scripture. So uh, theology, gospel truths are taught through narratives, through storying, and uh, maybe in a course they would learn ten stories, learn them very well and be able to integrate gospel truth into it. And then the assignment would be to go back to the church, because these are all men, uh, some women too, uh, engaged in ministry, and uh, take two of those stories, teach them to two other people, and uh, then to be able to do it in such a way that those two people could also teach the same story accurately to two others. So that's how the uh, curriculum went. So uh, let me bring us back to John. So uh, if you can kind of visualize how that works, I'm suggesting that the signs are something like that, the storing in, uh, in these courses. So uh, hopefully at the end of the seven weeks, you'll be able to tell the stories of uh, each of these signs and uh, be able to integrate the uh, greatest realities, the central gospel truths with each of these signs in a way that you can communicate to others who can communicate uh, the same truths to others so that the gospel may be proclaimed. So that's what we're doing. And uh, yet um, even though that uh, method I think could work for us we're not rural people. You know, literacy is uh, high, obviously, in our area, but we have other challenges. So uh, one of the uh, social political commentators that I listen to from time to time has spoken of the, as he calls it, the war on reality, the war against uh, reality. So in, in, in our day, we're challenged to uh, understand, to dis- discern what we hear. I'm dating myself, but uh, in my days as uh, a young student in uh, primary school or elementary school, uh, we had current events where we talked about what was happening in the world. Uh, I-, I wonder if kids have uh, current events anymore. It's more like uh, current uh, ideologies where the events, the things that happen are shaped or uh, I could say misshaped by the ideologies that are present in our world. And uh, we elders here at Bethel uh, have been wrestling with some of those tensions. We have actually read together the story of reality we would uh, commend that to you, where we've uh, sought to be sure that uh, even in the midst of the ideologies that bombard us, that uh, sometimes rage against the gospel, uh, we've wanted to focus on the realities, the greatest realities that'll keep us together, keep us united in the Lord. And even if we have some different perspectives, we might be sure that uh, what is framing all those perspectives, what uh, keeps us together, are the things that are of the greatest importance. So the signs are doing that 
for us as well. We work through the signs in the Gospel of John. These are the things that uh, matter the most. These are the non-negotiables for our life, for our lives. These are the greatest realities. They deal with redemption, God's story of redemption. And uh, so that's what we're in the midst uh, of doing. And uh, remember from last week, uh, John, that is the gospel writer, tells us why he wrote. So not too many uh, writers of scripture have done that so explicitly. But he tells us that I'm, I'm giving you these stories, I'm giving you these narratives, and uh, some of the messages of Jesus, I'm giving them to you, or to us, that uh, we might be able to behold his glory, to uh, see Jesus in the fullness of his greatness. So uh, glory is maybe an abstract term, but uh, glory always speaks, as we don't have time to develop it today, but glory always speaks of the presence of God and uh, everything about him that uh, makes him the greatest of all people, of all beings, the most uh, preeminent of all. So uh, when we have the opportunity to behold his glory, when we have that uh, engagement, when we embrace the fullness of the glory of God, especially in Jesus Christ, we're seeing all that is about him that makes him uh, so great and makes everything else in, uh, in our day and our world seem secondary if we can behold that glory. And then in beholding that glory, you know, in chapter 20, uh, part of beholding that glory is to realize here is the, the, the life-giving Savior of the world. And in, in beholding that, beholding him, then uh, we have that benefit, that uh, reward, if you will, of life that's enduring, eternal, and abundant. And it's not just until heaven, but it's now. And if you don't believe that, uh, ask, ask Barb. She's told us already. And she's uh, anticipating that powerfully. So uh, this is what we're doing as uh, we focus uh, on these signs. And this is what John uh, wanted to do for us. So uh, actually in the book of John, the signs occur in the first half of the book, chapters 1 to 11 or 1 to 12. And uh, all the signs point to the climax, 13 to the end, 2021. And the climax then, in fact, the, the greatest, we could say the greatest single event, the greatest reality of all history is what John has recorded at the end, as all the gospel writers have, and that's the death on the cross of Christ, and uh, then his resurrection, resurrection of life. And uh, again, I don't have time to develop it, but uh, that's the longing that we all have, life eternal, that there is something behind uh, this existence. And uh, where Christ is not, 
then uh, some other ideology develops, some other counterfeit, something else that uh, would, uh, again, rage against uh, the, the truth of what uh, John gives us. But we have knowledge of that uh, greatest reality, and uh, we'll continue to look at it as we look at the signs. And then uh, I'll be mentioning it from time to time uh, through the rest of our time together, but uh, something to think about. If indeed the greatest reality is uh, the death on the cross of Christ and his resurrection, do I make that a central point in my witness? So uh, in, indeed, we're all witnesses, aren't we? So, uh, in fact, I'm, I'm preaching to myself. I can think of uh, some times in the past. I, in fact, I think of uh, this week, I thought of uh, Ali, uh, my, uh, the trader, Muslim trader, that I talked with him uh, many times, and uh, wishing I could see him again. This is back in Nigeria. And uh, remind him again, or tell him a little bit more, hit it home a little bit more, that uh, Jesus did rise from the dead. He was dead, and then he got out of the tomb alive and uh, encourage him to interact with that a little bit more. Because otherwise, you know, uh, finding common ground for communication is challenging. And then, uh, again, uh, amidst the uh, false ideologies of our day uh, and the uh, opposition that we experience if we're going to be faithful in uh, speaking of the resurrection of Christ how so we look at the sign today we'll develop it how zealous am I in doing that am I zealous uh, for Christ am I passionate about uh, the resurrection is it really the greatest reality in my life in my experience so those are some of the things look at, uh, try to uh, move through as quickly as possible. You could uh, keep uh, chapter two open if you want, because I'll re be referring to that. If not, uh, just uh, follow along. But uh, we're in chapter two, especially verses 13 to 25, the second sign, and I've uh, titled it Jesus' Zeal the uh, cleansing of the temple. So uh, even as Chris has already prayed, uh, we're in the dwelling of God, the new temple. And uh, this sign uh, reflects, reflects about that, something about that. And uh, Jesus is zealous, was zealous, passionate, committed. You know, he set his face towards Jerusalem to uh, bring this about. So uh, the setting, something of the context of uh, this uh, sign, the second sign, the cleansing of the temple. Uh, remember, uh, Joey has reminded us, last week was the wine, the new wine. So one and two fit together, and actually one, two, and three fit, to, fit together because of the early part of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Russell will take us uh, next week. But uh, the new wine symbolizes that God was doing something new. So uh, 
You know, wine is not something uh, evil. Uh, sometimes we uh, maybe misconstrue that and uh, based on uh, certain uh, disciplines that we might uh, seek to follow. But uh, in Scripture, uh, wine signifies uh, the banquet. So it signifies the new age, that God is doing something new. It's a, a new celebration. So uh, we put these initial signs in that category. That uh, in the history of re redemption, you know, uh, transpiring over thousands of years, here, so then uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, God was doing something new in his plan of redemption by sending his son. And uh, the final years were ready to begin. You know, the, the intensity of ministry was uh, beginning. So the new wine was present. And then with this sign, the new temple was coming. So the religious uh, ritual, uh, the uh, uh, strategies uh, for relating to the most holy God as his people was changing. Uh, there was going to be a greater provision, greater freedom, greater joy, greater experience of that bun abundant life. A new temple was coming, and here he was in a second sign as he was uh, revealing. And as we think about that, uh, in uh, verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So uh, you remember the Passover, right? From Old Testament. So I, I can, uh, even though we're speaking in the New Testament, I can go back to the Old Testament here. So maybe to, to validate. Uh, but uh, you remember that uh, the redemption, deliverance from Egypt, we could say would be the, probably the, the greatest Old Testament event in God's plan of redemption. So, uh, again, uh, thinking like New Testament believers, how, how do you feel on uh, Christmas morning or Easter morning? So, uh, some of the uh, traditions might enhance your joy, and that's appropriate. But uh, aren't Christmas and Easter days with special joy, special excitement? Just don't, don't you just wake up excited? Well, for the Old Testament believer, Passover would be one of those festivals, one of those times of celebration to remember what God had done and uh, to be excited and to be looking forward to celebration. So uh, Jesus was going to do something special. So as we read this sign, this is not, uh, I don't think it's something uh, so spontaneous. Jesus was intentional. He knew what he was doing, and uh, he was looking for uh, a significant setting in which to do it. So again, uh, thinking of uh, the Old Testament setting. So they were in Egypt, enslaved for hundreds of years, you know, wondering about the promises of God. They weren't home. They weren't in the land God had promised. And uh, things were getting even rougher. The Pharaoh 
who did not know Joseph was making things tougher. So uh, they were enslaved, burdened, but God had sent uh, uh, his mediator at the time, Moses, uh, to lead a deliverance, sent the plagues against a mighty Pharaoh, the greatest nation, the most powerful nation in that day, and then the tenth plague came, and if they spread the blood on the doorposts, then uh, the sacrifice from the sacrifice, and you know, ate the sacrificial meal together, then uh, they would experience deliverance from the death angel. So they're, they're learning. They've learned that there's, uh, that there's atonement through the blood sacrifice. And, you know, part of the sacrifice was uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So uh, cleaning out the corruption in my household. So uh, if where there's atonement, where there's cleansing, symbolic of inner cleansing, acceptance before my God, then there's the uh, uh, resultant uh, responsibility to, to clean out the corruption to live in light of what God's doing in the, in the life. So uh, these are some of the things that uh, the faith, faithful Old Testament believer would be thinking about uh, come, uh, come Passover. I have a few slides. So I wanted to give you kind of a virtual. So there you go. So you're an Old Testament worshiper. Put yourself back a little bit. And uh, those are the steps leading up to the southern wall. There were openings in Jesus' day there. They're closed up. And that wall that's perpendicular to the one in the back wasn't there in Jesus' day. Some of the steps look pretty rough at the, at the lower point. They're thought to be original from uh, Herod's time. So Jesus walked up them. The disciples walked up those steps. So uh, there you are walking up to go to celebrate uh, Passover. Let's see the next one. So it's crowded. It's Passover, excitement. You know, Passover was one of the three festivals. Everyone had to come in, or at least the men had to come down and report and celebrate together. So this is a you know, crowded, boisterous time of great celebration. Okay, one more. So there we are inside. So that's cleared out. You don't see everyone. Temple's in the middle. And uh, Herod had made the, con he'd actually built, great engineer, uh, built a platform to extend the size of the temple complex. Uh, but you see, court of Gentiles, that's where we would be. So uh, now Marsha, Marsha, she could go through to the temple. Maybe Joey could too. But uh, the rest of us were Gentiles. We can't go through unless we were proselytized. But that's where we are. And it could be, we don't know exactly, could it be that uh, in those courts of the Gentiles is where this uh, sign takes place, where all the animals were brought up for uh, Used, to be used for sacrifice for those who could, could go into the temple complex there. But uh, again, the rest of us, we weren't privileged. We couldn't make it through the Sisorig there. means a, a wall. We couldn't go past that barrier. So that's where we are. 
and that Jesus is, is coming to uh, speak of uh, new realities, uh, greater realities. So uh, a couple things uh, about um, 13 to 25, just uh, give you the, uh, the, looking at the text, do this uh, quickly. There are three paragraphs, and uh, I wanted to bring uh, kind of uh, one aspect of uh, the Lord's glory in each of the paragraphs. If you look at this, the, the text yourself, and this is uh, where I've gone with it, uh, the first paragraph kind of parallels the second paragraph. First paragraph uh, gives Jesus' actions. And then there's uh, an interpretation, a comment, word of Jesus, and then also quotation of Scripture that actually interprets what Jesus has done. Second paragraph is something like that as well. I won't have time to flesh out all of that, so you have to go back and look at it yourself if you want to do some further study. Then there's some dialogue, some uh, interaction, a second paragraph between Jesus and the Jews. And that's given interpretation also. So uh, John gives us uh, his comment on uh, really what Jesus is saying and something that reflects upon this interaction. And then the last paragraph, uh, 23 to 25, kind of sums it all up and uh, helps us to think about further application. So uh, three points in uh, each of that. And then uh, the focal point I'm suggesting is uh, what the scripture says about everything. And the scripture is uh, back in that first paragraph, quotation from Psalm 69. Should have uh, one of the ladies come up there and speak about Psalm 69. I think that's one that they've done in the Bible study. Is that right, Michelle? So uh, difficult Psalm in some ways. But uh, the part of the verse selected from there is uh, the zeal. My zeal consumes me. My zeal for my father's house consumes me. So uh, I think John would have us focus on this sign on the zeal of Christ and uh, what that means as we behold his glory and then uh, thinking about what that means uh, to us as well. So uh, let's uh, think a little bit about the, the zeal of Jesus, or even the, the notion of zeal. Now, uh, we've said that this, Tyler mentioned last week, the second sign is kind of unique because uh, in all the other signs, either Jesus does some miraculous healing, you know, even the last one raises from the dead, heals a person born blind, you know, uh, heals... Uh, Someone uh, who's not even in the immediate vicinity. You know, someone who's been lame all his life. Or he makes a miraculous provision. You know, the wine, and later on uh, the bread and the fish. Nothing like that here. So uh, in that sense, it's kind of unique, something different. But yet this one maybe is uh, one that's, you know, 
stands differently from the other signs, but yet should be incorporated in the, the glory of Jesus and all the others, speaks of his zeal. So what is, what is that zeal? What does that signify of the glory of Christ? We can look at that. Would you associate it with, put up the slide, with that? What is that? That's a whip, probably a whip. We don't know exactly what Jesus fashioned, but uh, he used a whip to drive out uh, the merchandising that was occurring probably in the court of Gentiles, suggesting that uh, it had no place in the presence of God. Talk about that in a minute. But uh, do we think of uh, Jesus carrying a whip when we think of uh, the zeal of the Lord, zeal for my Father's house? Well, again, a, a few comments uh, about zeal. Well, zeal can refer to the actions of people or God. It can also have positive or negative connotations. Of course, with God, never negative, but with people, can be negative. With people, zeal can also refer to jealousy. So jealousy is something negative, obviously. So a person's jealous, then they're not happy with their lot. Their focus is self-centered rather than uh, properly uh, Christ-centered. But uh, think of, say, Rachel. She was jealous over Leah when Leah was bearing all the children and Rachel wasn't bearing anything. She was highly unhappy. Or uh, think of uh, Joseph's brothers. So they were jealous of their younger brother because of his father's favor upon him and uh, his father's uh, favor which had exalted him to uh, a place of prominence in the family, even though he's the younger. And even the dreams, Jesus was, or excuse me, Joseph was going to be exalted above the brothers. And even though they were exalted in the dreams, they weren't happy. You know, they were self-centered in their perspectives because they weren't happy because the younger would be above them. Or we can think of Asaph in Psalm 73. Uh, a worship leader in the, in the temple of God. He was, uh, his, his perspective was askew at one point. So uh, thinking of the prosperity of the wicked, and it was tempting him to think, uh, well, is it even really worth it, uh, obeying God or following after God? Look at these people that don't, and look how rich, look how, uh, li how well life is going for them. He was discontent with his own situation. So that's jealousy and, uh, in a wrong sense. But positively, there's some great examples of Scripture. So uh, actually there's two of them where the word is uh, signifying the actions of uh, faithful ones. Can you uh, think of who they are? If we were in a classroom, I'd call out, I'd call out two people that were zealous for the Lord, who comes to mind. I'll put the script, who is that? Paul was, yeah. 
I'm thinking of the Old Testament first. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Put the script. There we go. There's one. Who's that? Remember Phineas? So uh, he carried out zeal, Lord, quite gruesomely, but quite, uh, with quite necessity. So Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back. This is the Lord speaking. Has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of God in my jealousy. So uh, you can go back and review that. We have time to spend more on that. But there's Phineas, you know, acting with holy zeal, holy jealousy, taking matters, taking the initiative in matters and preserving the people of God. Next one, what's the next? Put the next scripture up. So the next guy, don't you remember Elijah, Mount Carmel? So uh, after his great victory, he was uh, down emotionally and complaining with the Lord. The Lord graciously heard him, but uh, this is Elijah's testimony. So the Lord didn't challenge, but he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, am left. They seek my life to take it away. So uh, Elijah, in fact, uh, he's regarded uh, among, uh, in Judaism, uh, one of the greatest uh, Old Testament prophets, and uh, he stood up against, remember, 450 prophets of Baal, Baal, and uh, even uh, Jezebel and Ahab, the worst influence in uh, Israel in the Old Testament. So uh, two great examples of uh, zeal for the Lord. So zeal, jealousy, can be positive. Of course, with the Lord, it's, it's always positive. And uh, it's often associated with God's anger or God's wrath, even as we looked at with these passages. So uh, we had our series in the Minor Prophets a while ago. Remember that? Remember Zephaniah, the day of the Lord? One passage from there, Zephaniah. So you see that passage, neither this is what the Lord will do in the final days, the day of the Lord. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. And then uh, even uh, in Ezekiel. Similarly, uh, this is a, a message of judgment against God's people, Israel. I will judge you as women who commit adultery, unfaithfulness, and shed blood are judged. And bring upon you the blood of my wrath and jealousy. God is wrathful. So I will satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you, and I will be calm and will be angry no more. See, the resultant condition is almost as bad as enduring God's wrath. When God's jealousy is satisfied, then he leaves us alone. Is there any blessing in being apart from the presence of God? So uh, 
this is some of the background in uh, the, back, the passage from uh, Psalm uh, 69. Something uh, reflecting of uh, Jesus' jealousy for the temple. So remember, Passover, the, all the connotations with redemption. The temple, the place of God's dwelling, God's presence, God's holy presence. And uh, a big uh, group that were involved in the worship affair, the celebrations. They were there uh, using it uh, for merchandise, uh, distracting from the greatest realities, uh, God's presence, God's atonement through blood sacrifice, uh, the uh, purification that is required of God's people. So uh, how could the Savior of the world uh, not be indignant? And uh, so he was. And so he took up the whip and uh, drove out uh, the people of God. So uh, his zeal. Again, uh, if you have look following the outline, I have uh, three uh, points to go through uh, a bit uh, quickly here. So I wasn't uh, as successful paring down my, my three-hour message but uh, you can look at them uh, on your own. Uh, I'm, if you notice, I'm a, in a little bit of a trouble here because uh, I've used uh, some alliteration. You know, Pastor Chris, uh, he's already told he doesn't like alliteration, but maybe he'll excuse me. I'll digress from that. But uh, the first point, uh, as we look, as we seek to see the glory of Christ uh, in the fullness of his zeal, the zeal for the things that are the greatest importance. See that uh, he's concerned about protecting against the threats of those realities that those realities speak of. And uh, even in the midst of that, speaking of his own role, he uh, perseveres because if there are threats against these greatest realities. That means there's opposition. And uh, actually, Psalm 69 speaks of that, which, again, Psalm 69 is uh, the, the comment that uh, John gives us, the commentary that John gives us on uh, this whole event. So uh, looking at uh, 13 to 17, I'm not going to reread it, but uh, please uh, do. Uh, follow what uh, I'm, I'm saying, but uh, this is uh, Passover, and if I kind of pick out the action verbs that uh, signifies uh, the intensity of our Savior's zeal to protect God's plan of redemption and uh, bringing that to God's people. So uh, what did he do? Well, he went up to Jerusalem from Capernaum, and uh, he found what he wanted to find. Uh, those that were in the court of Gentiles, perhaps compromising what God had in place, what should have been happening, you know, focus on the spiritual realities. So uh, he found them, took a whip. He drove them out. He turned over the coins. They were making some profit in it, and, uh, or poured out the coins and overturned the tables. So bam, 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 bam. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was doing it intentionally. 
And then, in the midst of the intensity of that emotion, actually it says he spoke. Uh, I don't know exactly how it may have transpired, but uh, if I was that engaged and uh, so intensely with something, I would have you know, shouted or screamed. There's no indication that it was quite like that. I'm sure Jesus spoke in his strong, authoritative voice, but he did speak. He wanted to be heard. And uh, again, that, that area where he was, uh, the, the temple, you can show those temple slides again. Next picture, ones after that. Well, we went past a little bit, but uh, there it is. And uh, uh, again, I don't know, uh, we don't know exactly uh, how great an area it was, but uh, court, there's the court of the Gentiles where this probably took place, where we would have been. And uh, the whole temple complex, we're told uh, from uh, Josephus, uh, was about 20, 20 soccer fields big. So there's about half of it. So I don't know where the animals were that Jesus was driving out, but uh, again, this is a crowded area, and uh, he was moving the, them out, and, uh, you know, uh, Phil plays football or soccer with my sons in a rec league team, so you can ask him uh, how he'd feel if he had to run at least half of that, one half of the court of Gentiles, 10 soccer fields, see uh, how, how gassed he might have been. <laughs> but uh, Jesus is... Uh, engagement with what was happening here actually might have been kind of miraculous physically uh, if uh, the selling the animals uh, encompassed a large area. But uh, Psalm 69 again speaks of, uh, skip some of the slides, but that's okay. Psalm 69 gives us something of that commentary of uh, Jesus' uh, zeal. And if I read through Psalm uh, 69, are those uh, verses up? If not, so uh, I'll read through that uh, quickly. Psalm 69 is a psalm of lament. And uh, we need to understand that uh, when a New Testament writer was quoting the Old Testament, he was thinking about the whole passage, not just a small part of it. So really, all of Psalm 69 can fit in uh, to our passage. So again, we don't have time to look at that, but uh, if you go back and review, think of it. So uh, part of the lament there, more in number, and, and as you can read, as you read this, of course, David wrote it first, but uh, you can read it with Jesus' experiences in mind, because that's what John is saying. And uh, Jesus must have taught them at some point in some context, as he was relating how the psalm spoke of him, how this psalm would relate, and uh, even how his death and resurrection would relate to that. So Jesus, because uh, this is the psalm of, an, of unjust suffering, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, who would attack me with lies. And I'm jumping ahead, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach 
if I read through the laments, reproach is repeated, repeated, repeated. That dishonor has covered my face. I become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. And there's our verse, for zeal for your house has consumed me. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So because of his zeal for the Lord's house, experience opposition, reproach. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. Jumping down to verse 19, you have known my reproach, my shame, dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart. So we can say a lot more there, but uh, I I need to move on. The point is, part of the lament, part of the zeal, and in fact, the necessity for the zeal is because there's opposition. There's a reproach upon the Savior for what he would uh, bring about and bringing about the greatest realities, bringing about uh, atonement, salvation. Uh, He would meet those that would not embrace it. So uh, even... I'm going to go over, skip over this, but uh, even in Psalms 69, there are some imprecations. So I know the ladies have wrestled with that in their psalm studies, some prayers against the enemy. So uh, that would be consistent, actually prophetically, with the wrath of God. And uh, that would be part of the zeal of our Savior. So uh, yet that is balanced as well in John Jesus said I didn't come into the world to judge the world I came into the world incarnation was experienced to save the world but those who didn't receive they're already judged because they rejected me and they rejected the one who sent me so that's part of all my part of that my theology of imprecation and uh, it speaks of uh, Christ's work then in uh, protecting against the threats uh, against uh, redemption and then uh, preserving uh, God's work and uh, then uh, attempting to move a little bit quicker here in the second paragraph and uh, which is connected with the first of course we read uh, that God in Christ that Jesus not only is zealous to protect threats against his work of salvation. He's zealous in preserving to bring it about, uh, even in the midst of opposition, even in the midst of reproach. Jesus never panders. He panders not to unbelief. So uh, read, I don't have time to go through this as I would like to, but... uh, you see that he's challenged directly, verse 18. They say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? So we know from the beginning, Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But those who did receive him, who believed in his name, gave the right to become children of God. So that's one of the themes of John. We're not going to develop it here, but uh, the opposition that Jesus' experience that leads to the cross, even amongst his own people. And uh, tracing uh, through 
the uh, unbelief of God's people sometimes could be comical. So even here, you know, Jesus gives a little bit of an obscure statement. Uh, you, you see that there. Uh, he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Of course, if I'm an engineer, I can think about, you know, Herod took decades to complete the temple. So if I'm thinking without spiritual understanding, it's nonsensical. You could give other examples of that. That's part of John. You can trace that in there. Unbelief is irrational. Unbelief just doesn't get it. It uh, misses the greatest, most essential realities. It's one of the themes. And uh, Jesus doesn't pander to that. And in fact, maybe he speaks uh, a little bit of obscurity here to reveal the unbelief. You know, sometimes when we, we know, maybe in our own experience, I'm preaching to myself, when I make statements of unbelief, and then the Lord, uh, in his grace, still ministers. I can remember what I said or what I thought, and I'm convicted. So maybe even uh, Jesus' interaction, though it seems kind of obscure, is gracious to enable people to hear their unbelief and uh, respond with repentance. So uh, if I would pander to unbelief, I won't, don't worry about the slides now, but if I would pander to unbelief, I'd be like those in chapter 12, where uh, John actually speaks of this issue. So you can look at that, 37 to 43. But uh, listen to what he says in verse 42. Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory of man, the glory that comes from man, more more than the glory that comes from God. So a person that panders to unbelief, that's the same thing, is uh, loving the glory of man more than glory of God. Uh, Pastor Chris has reminded us of that, I think, many times. One of uh, the encouragements that he gives us. But if we're going to be zealous for the things of God, for the greatest realities, I'm not going to be loving the glory of man more than glory of God. And uh, in fact, uh, zeal requires me to uh, confront the situations of of reproach, of opposition, uh, without uh, doing that. And then Jesus is our example as well. For uh, at uh, several points, he uh, himself, it's in chapter, chapter 12, he said, uh, verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then uh, even in chapter 11, moving uh, back in, in the time, chapter 11, when he wanted to go and uh, rescue Lazarus, we'll look at that, the disciples kind of scratched their head and said, Jesus, why are we going back there? They were trying to kill you there. So if I'm uh, 
pandering to unbelief, then uh, sometimes I'm concerned not about what God is doing, the glory of God, but maybe I'm concerned more about my personal safety. And uh, we've certainly heard much about safety this past year. And uh, I'm not going to comment on, on detail on that. I'm not saying that safety is not significant. But sometimes in the plan of God, safety, my personal safety, takes a back seat to being zealous for the purposes of God. And we see that in, this, uh, in the Gospel of John. In fact, in all the signs leading up uh, the, to the conclusion of, uh, of the cross. And then uh, lastly, you know, all too quickly, uh, our, our last point is that uh, Jesus not only protects against threat, protects uh, God's plan of redemption, protects us, protects our realities, and he not only panders not against unbelief and perseveres in the work of God, but he perceives core discipleship needs. So uh, that's the, uh, the last uh, paragraph. And uh, it says that many believed in him, but then Jesus himself, kind of the, the wordplay here is, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself or he did not, literally it says, he did not believe himself to those. So uh, the connection with belief then is connected with the other paragraphs, even the first sign, the end of the first sign, speaks of the disciples believing. And then uh, at the end of verse 22, the disciples remember and believed. So uh, the core discipleship needs, uh, I see here, Reflected in Jesus knowing us, knowing who we are, knowing that sometimes, quote, belief may not be genuine or may not be a belief that uh, actually embraces the glory, beholds the glory of Christ, and uh, maybe looked only at externals or looked only in a way in which I could gain from what Jesus is doing. So as I'm thinking about uh, all of uh, the Gospel of John, thinking about what Jesus is doing, he's making disciples. Think about how he does that in chapter 3 with Nicodemus and chapter 4 with a woman, at the, the, the Samaritan woman. And even in chapter 3, he speaks of the need to be born again, speaks of the need of the Holy Spirit. So core discipleship needs, uh, we only can mention this in math, passing, but Look at chapters 14 to 16, core discipleship needs. In order to shift from ingenuine to genuine faith certainly takes uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. So uh, the Holy Spirit is the one who indwells the believer. First of all, the one that gives the new life, the cause to be born again, but he's the one who speaks in words, the one that, that teaches, guides in all truth. So uh, embracing those spiritual realities is that which requires the work of the Spirit of God within us. And uh, Jesus, I would say, is perceiving that. I mean, that's a good part of the Gospel of John. 
14, especially chapters 14 and 16. See what the, those chapters speak of the Holy Spirit. And uh, the application for us then is that, uh, is that part of our ministry of discipling. Uh, we, we pray that it is. Pray that our work as uh, making disciples in Bethel is uh, always engaging the Spirit of God. Here I can only refer to some of the past messages. We've talked about it, but uh, encourage that uh, continual thinking. And the Spirit is always using the Word. So uh, if we're going to engage the Spirit of God in making disciples, we're engaged with the Word. Or uh, think of the book that uh, Greg reminded us of. It's focused on uh, teaching about Jesus from the Scriptures. So uh, Jesus even prayed. Remember, uh, sanctify me by your word, or sanctify me in, by the truth. Your word is truth. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He's the one that uh, has given us that word, the one that uh, enables us to receive it as a sweet to our souls, and the one that uh, enables it to, uh, by its truth, sanctify us. So core discipleship needs uh, refers to uh, our need for the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, refer, please refer to uh, the uh, Tim Keller uh, articles, book, if you can read it. Pastor Chris gave us that, remember, online. I would have referred to one of those. But uh, pray for our youth. There's some good examples there. Uh, pray for our youth that they, in the midst of our day of ideologies that uh, conflict with these greatest realities in the Word of God, you know, pray that they might be rooted and grounded in Christ and through the revealed Word. And uh, Chad is beginning a new series on that. Maybe uh, not with this book, but similarly with uh, focusing on uh, some of the greatest realities, uh, even as Pastor Chris gave us last year, the difficult questions. You know, being able to think in a Christian way, uh, being able to, to uh, be united and being latched on to those greatest truths and being zealous for them. And uh, that's what Jesus has done for us. So uh, my conclusion, thank you for your patience. Uh, my conclusion is, is Titus, and I'm stopping with that. Titus 2, 11 to 14, a great passage. Uh, all that Jesus is doing is to make us zealous, the last phrase there, zealous for good works. So we don't become zealous simply by imitating Jesus become zealous because of his death which has made atonement for our sin and uh, because of his resurrection which has enabled the sending of his spirit so that we might experience his grace experience his purification from all lawlessness Titus says and to become his precious possession his people and uh, as his people, we are now zealous for good works. Are we not? 
If we're not, then uh, we work with the Holy Spirit to bring his word into our lives, to enable us to behold the glory of Christ and to be uh, the people of God that he delights in. Amen. I think uh, I'll just close. Is that right? And uh, let me close with um, actually Jesus' prayer from uh, John 17. Jesus uh, prayed that, uh, let, me, let me look at it. He said he's made his name known, and he still made his name known. He made it to the disciples, makes it known to us, so that the love whereby he has loved the Son might be in us. And that when his love is in us, he might also join the Father in dwelling with us. So because Christ was zealous on our behalf to complete the plan of redemption, his love and the Father's love is ours. Even so, go forth in his love and in his zeal with a zeal by whereby he sustains us. Amen.